Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! When Kelly and I decided to start the Ready State, we knew we wanted to put a focus on training kids. We recently spoke to Jeff and Mickey Martin of the Brand X Method, who are gurus in developing physically competent kids that move like all-stars and are set up to be athletes for life. We touched on sports specialization in that episode, but in this episode, we really dive into that subject with our friend Eric Cressy. Yeah, Eric is the founder of Cressy Sports Performance. What's interesting about Eric is that he's a father, he's a high-level superstar, and if you if you live in baseball, you have run into Eric Cressy. He has trained more and prepared more all-stars and rock star baseball players than anyone else on the planet. He's a real specialist in specialization. But what's interesting is that, like us all, at some point he had to go back and become a generalist and really begin to talk about how do we prepare kids for the rigors of specialization. And so in in his kind of quest to make elite athletes in a special domain, he's had to go back and undo a lot of the old problems. Yeah, I mean, he's really great at helping kids get the most out of their sport without avoiding the per- with, while avoiding the perils of overtraining. He's an expert at that. Yeah. Um, if you Google Eric Cressy, you're going to see that he is on a top 10 list, top 40 list of every best strength coach on the planet right now. We are really lucky to have him. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Hey guys. Hey, buddy. How are you? We are great. Awesome. Thank How's you. My audio. Is this working out okay? You sound great. Perfect. I Thank have screaming you. kids in the background, but hopefully they, they chill out. Oh, that's just that's what we're talking about. It's the realism. That's outstanding. You know my world. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, just talk us through how you, in, in, in really big terms, how you got here today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I always joke with folks that I was a fantastically mediocre athlete. Um, like a lot of people, who those who can't do, decide to become a coach instead. So, um, you know, we talk to a lot of our, our people in the industry now and they say, if I only had this training when I was a teenager, you know, I would have been a pro athlete and I would have been a, an average Division II pro athlete most likely with good training as a high school kid. So I had to learn, um, you know, kind of trial by fire. So, uh, you know, I actually fell into this industry a little bit by accident. Um, I was getting recruited to play college soccer and tennis and um, actually had some health problems. I kind of wound up going down the exercise addiction, eating disorder road when I was, um, you know, transitioning into my senior year of high school um, in hopes of getting ready for college soccer. So I, I lost a lot of weight the wrong way, made myself pretty sick and actually wound up missing out on college sports as a result of it. But what it did do without me even realizing it, it's made me very passionate about figuring out a way to, to get healthy and, you know, how to take care of my body and get into training the right way. So, um, you know, I left my, uh, my accounting degree behind after my sophomore year in college and went to exercise science and wound up going on and uh, doing my grad degree in that at the University of Connecticut as well. So, um, you know, I joke that, you know, some, some personal trials and tribulations in my own, you know, kind of body and mindset uh, set me up for, for a career in this industry. Um, yeah, when I finished at UConn, though, my first, uh, you know, some of the athletes I first worked with in the private sector were baseball guys. And it just so happened that it was a population that was very underserved. And we kind of found a way to, to deliver to them where they're, you know, they had really, you know, kind of been left out in the cold previously. And, um, you know, high school guys became college guys, college guys became pro guys, and pro guys had teammates and agents and things like that. So here we are just over a decade later, and we've got, uh, you know, guys in all 30 major league organizations and, you know, kind of like a stable of middle school, high school, college, and professional athletes. One of the things I think is misunderstood about you, particularly, because if you type in your name, 
you're pretty synonymous with baseball and mechanics mm-hmm. around baseball, strength conditioning around baseball, but you also train other athletes and yeah. you really I mean, is baseball so special a sport that it doesn't require fundamentals and other mechanics and other abilities? You know, what I would say is, and we talk to our athletes a lot about this, is it's, it still requires, requires that extensive foundation. You know, it's the base of the pyramid that, you know, if you have those broad skill sets, it allows you to pick up the more specific stuff later. But, um, you know, I think the thing that's unique about baseball, and this is probably why we see so many more injuries probably than all the other sports when you look at it, is that it, at the highest level, if you're a pitcher, you want to minimize deviation. Like you want to literally have every pitch look like the exact previous pitch, um, your slider, your fastball, your changeup, everything should come out of exactly the same hand position, same arm slot, everything. And the more you deviate from that, the more you struggle. So it's, it's a sport where specificity is at its absolute highest in the world of athletics. Um, and what we realize is that, you know, at the professional level, guys get it, you know, all of our baseball players get back in September, October, November, and they absolutely hate baseball. I mean, we had Corey Kluber who threw, made three starts in the world series this year. And I talked to him like four days after the world series ended, he wanted nothing to do with baseball. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted like, just wanted to be away from it. What's weird is our high school and, and middle school kids don't get like that. They could literally do it year round and, you kind of have to borrow a pitch from the pro guys and say, listen, there's a, there's a time and a place for specificity, but it, you definitely need to step away from it to, to look at the longer term picture. Well, that really makes an interesting segue because one of the things that you do is that you do work with youth you know, in development yeah. and you work at the highest levels. And, and there is a commonality. We see a lot of the greatest athlete coaches we know, coaches, mm-hmm. they, they can speak on the spectrum. So in the development, and we talk about sort of athletic development in kids and, fun, and foundations, do, does working at this pro level influence how you see and the choices you make when working with kids? Absolutely. And, and we're in a unique spot now. Um, you know, we, we kind of joke that we, to some degree, kind of created this industry of baseball strength conditioning. Like they were doing it before, but they were never like really catering to this specific population and realizing that even those 15-year-olds that are throwing 85 – they need specialized arm care. They need specialized training approaches because of the, the way that you know they're stressing their body. But we've actually had guys who were with us in eighth grade who are now throwing 100 miles an hour in professional baseball. Like it's the the craziest like long term athletic development perspective in the baseball industry. You just don't see guys that have had that like you know long term viewpoint on here's what it takes to manage one of these guys for a decade and keep them healthy. And I think that's been eye opening because what I can tell you is that the the kid that we saw in 2007 when we were first getting going, he's de-evolved since then. Like what we see in 2016 here, the average kid that walks in is, is less athletic. He, he, he's lost these fundamental movement competencies. His work capacity is lower. Um, the, the health histories on like initial intake, they're more speckled with issues. I mean we're seeing – you know, Tommy John's and 12-year-olds, we're seeing femoral acetabular impingement and 14-year-olds, we're seeing stress fractures and, you know, in, in teenage athletes as well. It's really like shocking that not only is the movement diagnosis worse, but the medical diagnosis is worse as well. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because we were going to uh, sort of go forward and talk about this, but one of the conversations that Kelly and I have at home all the time is, and frankly, we talk with other parents all the time because I think people are really seeking for answers about how to manage this. But, you know, we see that we're really in sort of a health epidemic with kids. I mean, not only their sedentary lifestyles, but their lack of movement and mechanics education and 
And every, and you know, we, we see it as a health crisis right now. And it's, yeah. you just touched on that, that you're already seeing, you know, kids as young as middle school come in just totally ill-prepared. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing. Yeah, I think it's, it's scary because, um, you know, we, we saw a lot of these issues in the past, but we saw them in professional athletes. You know, we saw them, you know, in guys that would, you know, that would take the Toradol shot or the dose pack or whatever they needed to do to get through that last week of the season. <laughs> and now you see these these kids who have that same level of wear and tear at a really young age. Um, there were some awesome studies from Mark Phillip on the, uh, you know, kind of hip specialist out at Seven Hawkins Clinic in Colorado. And he looked at basically peewee hockey players from ages 12 to 18. And he showed that every two years you could basically take this sample size and image their hips and you see this greater incidence of bony overgrowth of the hip, greater incidence of labral tears. And like those kids aren't just going to be, you know, hockey players that are uncomfortable. Those are all going to be kids that need hip replacements in their 40s. You know, and hip replacements don't last 50 years. You know, you got to get them redone. And I, what, what's scary to me is like, you know, we talk about the, you know, the public health crisis in terms of obesity. We talk about the, you know, the just the short term stuff we see in childhood epidemics. Like what happens when all these kids are in their 60s and they need shoulder replacements and shoulder replacements still aren't as good um, as we want them to be? Like that's that's just from a pure orthopedic standpoint. It's it's actually pretty scary to think about. You know, we see we see this um, sort of a nexus of, I think, of kind of three ideas. One idea is that we've continued to fetishize professional sports. Mm-hmm. And, and let me ask you, this is a great question we ask all the professional yeah. athletes and athletes we know, coaches we know, would you let your daughters play professional sports? Um, yes, I do. And I, and I think I'd, I'd say that strictly because um, we have guys that I think live very well-rounded lives and, are, and, and understand how to take care of themselves. And my hope would be that over the next you know, 16 to 20 years that I could educate them about how to, you know, put themselves in the best positions to be successful and manage that life. I've also seen, you know, kids that are poorly well adjusted and have done it all the wrong way. So I, th- I think it has a lot to do with, you know, who you have around you, whether you have an agent that's a yes man or someone who's going to actually challenge you and encourage you to make good decisions in your life. So I, I would, um, you know, if I had a son and, you know, you were asking me whether I would let him play in the NFL, that might be a different discussion. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'd be okay with it just because, um, you know, I think, and, and you can speak to this is that, you know, it's sports isn't just about, you know, what you get in terms of physical activity and um, things like that. You, you learn a lot about the dynamics of working as part of a team. You learn a lot about time management. You learn a lot of different skills that, you know, sustain you long after your athletic career. So I look back on what I learned as an athlete and it, it, it played a big role in who I am today. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be OK with it. I appreciate that. As long as your last name is Cressy. <laughs> you're, 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 exactly. you're allowed to be a professional you're, athlete. It. It but a I, huge asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's important, and that also kind of swings down. So, because Juliet and I strongly believe that we need to de-emphasize, because the kids are going to be pros who are the best. They emerge very early, and you can yeah. see and their work ethics and their self-drive and and their mechanics and 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 the fundamentals and just nurturing that makes sense. And we b- firmly believe that sport is not optional, that it is yeah. physical, emotional, intellectual self-actualization through a, a physical practice. We know that people are stronger and fitter and better and more technical than ever they were. I mean, kid, you know the, the level of detail that kids come in today, they're a lot more sophisticated. And I think you know, we have to manage that sophistication. Then the conversation is, well, where are we going wrong about kids being prepared? What, what is it that we, we need to shift around, and then how do we make those changes? I think the base is getting too narrow. And I, I think 
you know, to the, to the wonderful work you guys are doing about trying to, you know, get kids in standing desks, things like that, is that, you know, that's the, that's the tip of the iceberg. We have more fundamentally unprepared bodies who have more opportunities than ever to just compete. Um, you know, you, you can go and play that AU basketball tournament where you might go 0 and 8, but you're still going to play eight games in a weekend. Whereas when all of us were growing up, you lost in the first round, you were done. You went home and you sulked about it and you worked hard and you came back, but you didn't just go and play seven more games in a state of fatigue and, you know, strap your knee brace on when your MCL was killing you. Like you, you, you had a, a level of, uh, separation from competition at times that just can't happen. So I'll give you an example. Um, I, from 2007 up until 2014, we worked heavily with baseball players, but exclusively in Massachusetts. And what's awesome about Massachusetts is the baseball season doesn't start in the high school ranks until the third Monday in March. So literally you play usually two to three games a week from effectively April 1st up until uh, you know the end of May. State tournament actually may run until after kids have graduated. So they basically will play in season from the third Monday in March up until – Usually summer ball wraps up like late July, first week in August. So even if those kids decide to do a little bit like the showcase circuit, even if they decide to play fall ball all the way into the second week in October, um, they had from basically the second week in October all the way up until the third Monday in March off from baseball competition. Like we could easily shut a guy down. Kid could go play football or soccer in the fall. Um, he could step away. He could play basketball. He could he could be a three sport athlete. Um, and for us, it was remarkable because you you take those kids, you shut them down September first. They take off all of September, all of October. They pick up a baseball the Monday after Thanksgiving. Start building their return to throwing program. You've got sixteen to twenty weeks to get them ready for a high school season and really like teach them how to you know mechanically be sound, throw with intent, all that stuff. It's like this unbelievably perfect developmental calendar. Um, that allowed us to have a lot of success. In, in 2011, as a frame of reference, um, it was the best draft since 1981, and Massachusetts was the fifth best state in the country. And it was a lot of those kids that had been with us. I mean, we had, you know, I don't think we have two million people in Massachusetts. I can't even tell you how many there were, but we had a, a really good track record of having these guys that bought in, did it the right way, put in years. They got around pro guys. They 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 grew mentally, physically, all that stuff. And they were largely healthy. It was, it was a remarkable thing. Fast forward to 2014 when we opened up our facility in Florida. So the typical Florida high school baseball calendar, they start their baseball season the second week in, in January. Um, so when you start the second week in January, you report to spring training for baseball a month before the first professional pitcher reports. So they extend you a month on the front side. All those guys uh, play two games a week for the most part in Florida. So they play a less condensed schedule, but they make the season longer. So what you wind up having in Florida is you have high school coaches who have two starting pitchers and one relief pitcher. They throw three guys and they just run them out there. Um, so we had we had guys who had 30 innings before February was even over on their arm, which is, oh my God. is insane. So they'll go all the way up until late May. And the second they break, they go right to their summer travel schedule. Um, which goes all the way up until like like generally the, the beginning of August. And then usually guys might get a week or two off, but all those travel programs need to make their money. So what they start doing is they start doing camps, tryouts for the next season in like September. Uh, down here where I am in Jupiter, Worldwood Bat is a is probably the most well-known fall ball tournament. That's in late October. There's a big event in Fort Myers two weeks earlier. 
And so all these guys think they need to do it. The high school coaches encourage them to play fall ball, which is a couple nights a week. That goes up until Thanksgiving. So what winds up happening is you have a bunch of high school arms that they get to Thanksgiving and they're in this horrible position of, do I shut down for a month and a half and then just start throwing when high school practice starts? Or do I just throw straight through because I'm afraid I'm not going to be ready and my high school coach is going to be mad at me? So it's this horrible developmental scenario. And the, literally the only, there's only two ways that you can make it better. Either the parent has to be the jerk and say, we're just not going to play in the fall. And that means standing up to a travel ball coach who you know, is, is not afraid to be a jerk and move on to the next guy and say that you're never going to get recruited for college if you don't do this. Or irritating a high school coach that wants you to play fall ball. Or you have to basically pray that the state athletic association just decides to push the spring season back and fortunately this year they actually did they moved it back to january 31st as the official start but even those two weeks it's like i mean it's it's putting a band-aid on an open wound so when we're in this horrible developmental situation down here where our expertise is exactly the same the kids are just as motivated we have great culture all this stuff but literally the the calendar of sports are such that they can't be three sport athletes they can't even be two sport athletes if they want to down here well one of the th- i mean one of the things you talk about and everyone talks about is hey we want you to play lots of sports and yeah. and there's been high level you know uh former coach for the Niners now at uh you know Michigan used to mm-hmm. say hey I'm going to only draft you know multi-sport multiple multiple sport athletes yep. but in a place like you know Massachusetts you hear that kids can't play year round they're just blocked yeah. sorry it's winter so they're, they're forced so the two questions one is if if we can't play if we're if we're going to not be able to fall into this multi-sport program because we used to think that was enough just play lots of sports it'll, it'll round out but what we are coming to believe is that we have to put in some kind of formal movement training on top of that yeah. is that going to be enough if kids who are kind of in this year round you know they hit the lottery of, of playing in a warm environment can we support them enough with augmented strength and conditioning or is that just still you know talking around the problem because ultimately we need to say baseball stops and we yeah. have to re- protect kids. I think um, I'm a big believer that small hinges swing big doors. So, so yes, I think that appropriate like supplemental training like what we do um, can certainly a- dramatically attenuate the, the injury risk, um, you know, and the, just the, you know, the mental burnout that sometimes, you know, takes place. Um, but I think what it also is, it's a, it's um it's kind of like a lead-in to being able to win guys over so that they make good decisions for their development. So if you take a kid who's 15 years old and he comes into a training facility and he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm lifting right next to a Cy Young Award winner, and then he puts on 20 pounds in three months, gets a ton stronger, builds his confidence, there's a, there's a big-time buy-in there where he's rubbing elbows with pro guys and you know he's realizing this is something that he wants to do. So you've, you've effectively won him over. You've won his parents over. You've realized that this is – this is a good thing. It's probably pushing out some some behaviors that you don't like about his 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 lifestyle. So I think for us, that's our secret. You know, if we can if we can deliver a really really good experience to guys in those first three to five months and make them realize, hey, you can trust us. We've done this before. You know, hey, look at Adam Ravenel. He started when he was 130 pounds, and now he throws 101. Um, you know, in the Tigers organization and won a national championship at Vanderbilt. Those are like those are powerful stories that create context for guys. And make them exciting about the training process as much as about the competing process. So I, I do think there's a large. It's not just like a you know a periodization or a discussion of training principles or anything like that. It's very much a way to figure out how do we get really really good buy-in so that down the road when those kids have to make tough decisions, they trust the information that we're giving them. 
My question is, what, what would you say to parents who see this universe where uh, it seems like their kid can only succeed if they do just specialize and play year-round sports? And, and for, for context, our daughter is 11 and is now already about to start her third year of club volleyball. Mm-hmm. And if we allowed it, she could literally pl- do exactly what you're saying. She could play, uh, you know, the actual season, which starts in January and goes all the way through June, do camps all summer, clinics all fall, and literally have zero break from volleyball, you know, to the point where she's, you know, doing two or three practices a week and then a weekend-long tournament. And what I see from those parents is that they they're seeing that, the only way for their kid to be successful and continue to make those teams and be part of those teams is to, you know, get onto that sort of treadmill of nonstop volleyball. Um, you know, in your experience, it, are the talented kids and the kids that are going to go the distance will, you know, stay on the teams and stick with it regardless of whether they do that year round game. It's actually remarkable. They they refer to this almost every year. That they would never say it on ESPN when they're putting it out there. But there are actually shockingly few kids that are stars in the Little League World Series that ever actually become professional baseball players. I mean, you, there are a couple. There's a handful of guys that have done it. But more often than not, what happens in our world is the kids who are the best athletes are the ones that get overused the most when they're young. You know, the kids that have the curveball at age 11. So the coach, you know, throws them for 130 pitches every weekend and, you know, they spin 60 curveballs with horrible mechanics. So, um, it's, it's interesting. There's that whole idea of like short-term gain, long-term pain is, is highly prevalent in the baseball world. They, they burn out. So very rarely is the kid who's the best player at 12, you know, the guy who's getting the big scholarship at age 18. I just don't see it over and over again. Um, and more often than not, it's not just like a, a physical thing. It's very much a, a mental thing as well. So um, it's a challenge because, you know, I mean, I assume your daughter would love to go out and play volleyball nonstop year round if you would let her. Or, or is she someone who has a good head on her shoulders about it? Well, I mean, we we're constantly, you know, sort of trying to fight the madness. And we try to yeah. just, you know, we try to travel in the summer and be away from yeah. it all and just create awesome. natural breaks. And I can't remember who suggested this, but, you know, someone said, hey, look, if you just have your kid go, you know, be off in the summer, then, you know, you're at least getting close to having some kind of balance. Exactly. So, no, but it's think, hard. It's a, it's a constant, it's a constant struggle. And to, yeah. to, to see it firsthand with our own kid has been very enlightening. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, one of the things that we can draw from the highest level of professional athletes is I, I'm a big believer in, you know, where are your windows of adaptation? You know, we have a pro guy that comes in like, you know, a guy who has pristine mechanics is at the big league level and his velocity is down. The last thing I'm going to do is go and tinker with his mechanics. We're going to start looking at a lot of different factors. You know, what's changed? Why, why have you dropped off in the last year? Is it sleep quality? Is it nutrition? Do you have some kind of injury? You're, fine, you're trying to find that, that window of adaptation that's going to give you the, the best results with a minimum effective dose. You know, and, and I think where we, we have to remember is, all right, so you can play volleyball year-round. If you add that extra month of volleyball, what are the – what are the likelihoods that you're going to improve by more than maybe 1% from a skill standpoint? But I think if we look at what's the alternative, what happens if you get involved in the good strength and conditioning program after never being it? You might get you know, 800% stronger over the course of three months. Um, you, know, you may become 800% more durable. Like you might add six inches to your vertical jump, which would dramatically make your future training and competition that much more impactful. So I always talk to athletes like let's let's look at this and what is the thing that you need to work on the absolute most? How do we how do we get to that immediately? I really appreciate this. You know, one of the 
things that we've seen is I think everyone everyone who's in the strength and conditioning world, serious world, and, and, and sort of battling the, the dichotomy of, hey, this is the way the world is working. We're going to try to opt out as much as we can and also prepare and protect our kids and also have a a base where we can continue to layer on this athletic development. So it's not, you know, sort of disrupted, you know, that mm-hmm. baselines continue. But what we're finding is that we almost have to wait until this old generation of, you know, coaches moves on. True. You know, and, and that we are seeing, you know, the the benefit of of top down because I think at one level it's easy to be, you know, look at our professional athletes and, and fetishize that and and not understand, you know, the millions of hours that gets there. On the other hand, those guys really do send up men and women send up, uh, you know, <laughs> benchmarks and, and signposts about saying this is the way back. And sometimes even I've talked with good organizations who keep a master's athlete on, you know, one of their oldest guy on their roster because he is the hardest worker. Exactly. He has the he has the cleanest nutrition. He works the hardest, and he shows all the young guys this is what it takes to stick around. And you know, I I think there's real merit to you know identifying and then paying it backwards because. You know, when we work in the NFL, and I know you've—I've said this before to other people—and you know, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. We talk to the NFLers, and they'll say things like, "Oh, you know, the real problem is that these kids come out of college and they're all broken." You know, and then you talk to the college coaches, and they literally will say, "You know, 92, you know, 90% of our, you know, all-American drafts, you know, picks, our recruiting class had knee pain with squatting, so it's high school." And then you, and you're like, "Well, in high school, you know, who is coaching and teaching kids?" And it's volunteers. Yeah. It's true. You need the best coaches at the youngest levels in many cases. You know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, getting the genetically blessed guys and the guys that have already built this huge foundation of work makes it a lot easier. It's more about putting the, the cherry on top. But you look at what's happening at the youngest levels. And I mean, we all know, like we deal with the, the ramifications in many cases of kids that have come in and been hurt in that weight room where they decided they were going to do squat bench clean with, with 45 kids in the weight room and teach them all at once. It's, I mean, it's just logistically not, not feasible. It's not going to happen the way we want to, but you know, I, I think the the other thing too is that that becomes less and less feasible because of what's happening when kids are even younger. Like, you know, those seven year olds are not getting recess. You know, they're they're not getting exposed to you know the level of just free play on a daily basis that you or I got when we were much much younger. And that stuff is is super important. You can't go back and make that time up when you know you're even getting structural changes in kids' hips. You know, because they, they don't know how to squat anymore. They don't know how to move the way that we used to when we were a lot younger. So it's um it's scary stuff. And you know, I, it's hard to, to it's hard to put blame on just about anybody. Like I, there isn't a single healthy elbow or shoulder that enters professional baseball, and that's not going to change anymore. There was a a study uh, of Japanese nine to twelve year olds that I think showed that over fifty percent of them already had uh, UCL damage on imaging. Like that's it's astounding, um, but it's it's what it is because you know in Japan they throw even more than we do in the U.S. with their guys. It's you know it's a, a, a cultural you know I hesitate to use the word phenomenon because that would imply that it was actually a good thing, but um, it's a it's a cultural thing over there that they just throw kids until their arms fall off. So um, I, what what do you do when you're an NFL strength coach and you get a guy who's who's got a spondy, he's got two ACLs under his belt, and he's got chronic, uh, you know, kind of extension-based back pain and a couple torn labrums in his shoulder. Like, you're dealing with a, you know, kind of a, a guy you just need to be able to strap together and put that back out there on Sunday. So I do feel for them. That's a, it's a tough dynamic to be put in. So you, your girls are how old? Uh, just turned two. <laughs> oh. Yeah. 
There's a scene called Sleep. It's amazing. Wait till you see. It's incredible. I saw a <laughs> yeah. tweet a couple weeks Some... ago where somebody said, uh, you know, think about what your favorite thing is, then don't sleep for three days. As it turns out, sleep is your favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the things that's you know is interesting and that you I know already face because you work with so many so many different diverse people from kids to to the top. But you know, Juliet pulled me aside one day and she's like, Hey, you're that dad. And I was like, I'm that dad. I'm, I really, she's like, she's like, no, no, no. You're the dad who doesn't coach his kids for fear of being that dad at all. And it's uh, true. I said, I said, look, our kids should enjoy some of the benefit of you and your professional background. But he was so worried about being that dad that he just yeah. sat there quietly and said, not one thing until I freaked out. And uh, the first time I freaked out was in our, on our kids' swim program. And ultimately, we abandoned our, the strength conditioning program for this. We did it for a couple of years for this. You know, we called it movement skills for the swimmers because we, no one, the only people who cared about it was Juliet and I and not mm-hmm. the coaches. And yet, when we got into our volleyball program, I finally raised my hand and said, hey, um, by the way, this is what we do for a living and can we help? And finally, you know, we have this organization from top down that has made a commitment that's awesome. And we have started working on fundamental movement skills. I mean, once a week right now, because it's just preseason, we have about 30 girls who show up at the gym and we teach jumping and landing. And what's interesting is, you know, these are 12 year olds. <laughs> we'll, we'll get everyone is that when we saw some initial assessment of these girls moving a couple of years ago in a, in a room full of 80 girls, we saw not a single one could jump and land with a stable lower leg. Every single one of them had a turned out foot and a collapsed yeah. arch and valgus knee movement and overextended. Every single one, except one, which is our your, daughter. Your daughter. <laughs> right. <laughs> which we, I was like, Georgia, this is how we jump and land and I'll kill you if you do it wrong and let's practice a whole bunch, right? And, and by the way, here's a trampoline. So the, the question is, for parents, for coaches listening, where do we start? I know what I did. I was just like, I'm getting involved and we, we marched right in and our, we've, we've inserted ourselves deep into this women's development program that literally goes from 11 to 18 and we're now you know patching holes building foundations and it's amazing how fast kids pick it up and that they are now jumping and landing in better positions and there's but to the t we we had we haven't most girls we have one girl out of maybe 50 girls who can do a single push-up one but there it's okay for them to swing and the number of no, I asked those girls how many people have knee pain who've had knee pain, and literally, you know, in 30, it's like 12 90 percent of 90%, them, 90 percent, you know, will already talk about their pain. So, with that context, how do parents get involved? Where do we go? Help us, oh wise one. Yeah, I mean, I put it this way: this is gonna be a question I probably start asking. Our girls are going to like their first little like fun gym class tomorrow morning. In fact, so um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Hopefully, you know, nobody buys a diaper blowout right when we get there. But um, you know, I think. I think it's probably a very individual thing because I know, uh, you know, I look back on my parents and my parents were wildly supportive, but they didn't know what to do. Like they, they couldn't have possibly like volunteered. My dad coached flag football, I remember back in the day, but they wouldn't have known how to help, um, how to direct things like that. So I think it probably depends on where you're at. Like I think, you know, for, for you and me, like we, we have a platform. So I think a big part of it is if you do have that platform, um, you have to use it, you know, and, and, and preach, you know, to stay away from early sports specialization and stuff like that. And I think that's also where it's so important to, you know, to have these professional athletes who, you know, have really gone out of their way to, to speak about the importance of playing multiple sports and doing that stuff. Um, but I, I think, you know, where, where we can probably 
you know, uh, agree is that one of the things that we can also do is that our, our kids can become walking examples of what we believe in. Um, so, you know, our girls are going to play multiple sports. They're going to have a lot of fun. And, you know, my hope is also that it's going to get their friends involved too. You know, the people around them are going to want to do the same and that, you know, you make yourself a resource in your community. Um, I also know that, you know, uh, we, there are other ways we can support things. We support it every time we vote for against school budgets that, that may restrict, you know, uh, physical education programs. Um, we can do it in the Word. way that we – Word. Yeah, we redistribute our charitable contributions to things that matter. Uh, charity I support the most is actually my my sister in law runs an after school program in Lewiston, Maine, um, which is uh, one of the, the the towns nationwide that actually has received uh, the most uh, Somalian and Sudanese refugees. So um, she helps out a ton with getting them acclimated to their new surroundings. But just as much like she keeps the peace in the community because they go in after school and they work on their homework, they have activities, they have everything imaginable. So you know, that's how I choose to devote a lot of my charitable efforts. So I think we have a lot of ways that we can help out. Um, you know, I, I think you or I can write blogs until the cows come home about, you know, how important it is to, uh, you know, to not specialize early. But I think at the end of the day, probably our day-to-day -day actions are the things that absolutely matter the most. So, you know, when the, when the day is right, I definitely want to be, I don't know if I want to be that dad, quote unquote, but I definitely <laughs> want to be the one that's at least very supportive of it. Um, because I do see a lot of parents that I think want to do the right thing. But don't know how, you know, the ones that that can't wait to berate their kid in the car on the ride home for what he did wrong, um, and you know that's just that's not how the real world works. It's not how it should work. So um, I do think we need to make athletics a fun, like a nurturing environment where people foster, you know, these lifelong habits for exercise. You know, far beyond when volleyball wraps up or or basketball finishes or whatever it may be. You know, I know you've been coaching for many many years and have probably coached athletes starting in middle school all the way through the minors and majors, I assume. Uh, tell us a little bit about your sort of philosophy of training an athlete. You know, where would you start with a middle school kid? How would that look different for a high school kid, college kid going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the biggest thing for me is I always want to make sure that I don't walk in with any preconceived notions of how an athlete's going to move. Um, because certainly there are kids that come in who have had well-rounded, you know, kind of movement foundations that have been established and we want to make sure that we don't hold those people back, you know, just to kind of, uh, you know, be, be satisfied with the norm. So we have kids that we will push very, very hard if they come in, they move well and, you know, they're very motivated and want to be challenged. But I, I think for me, the, the secret is we, we do a thorough assessment on everybody that starts at our facility. Um, you know, that begins with, you know, obviously a health history, you know, questionnaire and, and just a sit down discussion of what's your training history, where do you want to be, what are your goals? Uh, because that's, that's a lot of things. That's an opportunity to interact with a parent as well and get a feel for how they're involved. You know, I want to know when we sit down and talk with that 15 year old kid, does he answer the questions or does his dad talk over him? And if that happens, what is the, what's the re reaction from the kid? Is he scowling? Is he looking down at the floor? Um, because ultimately I, I view what we do in the gym as a, you know, kind of medium to create, you know, social change for those kids to make them, you know, better advocates for themselves and to understand, you know, how to, how to manage their lives moving forward. So I'll make a point of, you know, kind of redirecting the conversation if that happens where we actually turn to the kid and say, well, what do you think about that? Um, you know, and you know, just basically try to try to get them out of their shell a little bit. So that first day for me is very much not just like a, 
you know, meet and greet, but also like a movement evaluation, um, you know, and then an actual technique training session. I think it's important to get moving on the first day to see how they respond. So really that, that first day for us gives us the, the information we need um, to design a good program that's, you know, that's, that's done in accordance with their needs. So that would be the same whether we're talking about a 13-year-old kid that comes in or whether we're talking about, you know, a, a 29-year-old Cy Young Award winner. So um, I think the exception to that rule, we actually run an, um, a class called CSP Foundations. Cressy Sports Performance Foundations, and it was really started by popular demand of some of the younger brothers and sisters of our current athletes who, you know, saw how cool it was and wanted to jump in on the madness. So we run it a couple nights a week. Um, and it's really seven to thirteen year olds, and it's just—I mean, it's fun. Like they, you know, we'll have relay races, we'll play spike ball, they'll throw the med balls around, and th- but there's, you know, there's always like that initial. 20 minutes or so that's movement competency exercises like learning how to lunge, learning how to support your body weight, learning how to land, do things like that and then we have a blast with it. But the funny part about it is I was always kind of like questioning whether our staff would really be into it. I mean you, you deal with professional athletes all the time and like our staff like lives it up. Like they're huffing and puffing and sweating with the kids and giving out fist bumps and having a blast. It's it's like going back to, to PE back when you were in, in middle school and just having a blast with it. So that's been one of the best things that we could have possibly done because it, you know, to, to my earlier point, it gets people into our culture so that they trust us. And those seven-year-olds, I want them to be with us when they're 18-year-olds and I want their brothers and sisters to come in. I want them to train with us when they're professional athletes, college athletes. You want to kind of get them into the right mindset early on. We, I so appreciate that. We, I have a couple of girls I've been working with now for a couple of years and the parents swung by the gym and they, we were just doing, you know, light front squats. You know, we have the training bar, we're sets yeah. of five and the parents came in and were like, holy crap. And I was like, well, what do you think I have been teaching? You know, this, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not, you know, we're not just wasting time. Like these kids yeah. are legit. Um, we had a strength. We had a, a friend's son. He was going to play freshman football, and, and they were worried before you know he started playing freshman football. And they were like, "We know he, Dylan needs to you know, lift some weights." And we're and uh, fortunately for us, we had this kid named John Anderson, who was an amazing strength athlete, um, just north. And literally, John has a little I don't know what's the word, word pack. Wolf, 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 like yeah. group of wolverines, uh, a cabal of young kids. He comes up, <laughs> and they've all found the master. I mean, he literally crushes them but it's all about technique he, they're not allowed to squat at home they're not allowed to show off their bench press to their friends That's he awesome. runs this show and the kids just line up and he like he'll take them out and buy them burritos and blow their minds and <laughs> but what's interesting is so much of what we've been talking about of course is is the movement competency and development and skills but how much of your practice and is talking about sleep and nutrition and the sort of the forgotten stepchilds of of physical practice it's it's huge um and i think uh you know we attack it in different ways for sure um like we always encourage our athletes to do nutrition consults and, and we'll actually encourage parents to sit in on it with it as well um and really get by and you have to you have to bring a kid along to get into that point um but certainly we speak about a lot i mean we know there's research that shows that you know teenage athletes who sleep less than six hours a night are 1.7 times as likely to get injured as those who sleep eight or more hours. Like it's established. Um, so if if we can get those guys to realize, hey, every hour before midnight's worth two hours after midnight, um, that's wildly important. Um, you know, we'll do stuff in terms of like honestly, one of our biggest issues is having to put weight on skinny you know high school baseball players. So we do like competition boards. Um, things like that. We'll, we'll joke that like the top three on the week are Metallica and the, the bottom 
during the week are Drake. So we have kind of like, <laughs> this, uh, it's like a, a great dry erase board at the facility. But, you know, I, I think that's a huge, huge part of it. Um, and what you find is I think that once the kids get going on the training side of things, the sexy stuff that they showed up for, then all that other stuff becomes easier to deliver. You say, hey, this is going to support that training even better. Hey, you put on a little bit of muscle mass. It's going to you know, you're going to get a lot stronger, a lot faster. It's going to help you a little healthier. So, you know, it's the whole small hinges swing big door. But I do think you have to be really careful. There's that old saying, you know, when you chase two rabbits, both get away. And I think that can happen sometimes when you overwhelm, you know, a high school kid early on. Um, I'll never forget, we had a, we had a kid who, who, got, who signed for $2 million in the first round in 2014. And like phenomenal kid. He was one of those like high school kids. He actually came up from Pennsylvania to train with us. Um, and we put like 29 pounds on him in an off season. It was one of the most impressive things I'd ever see. He was like 95 to 98 off the mound, um, the following spring. And I'll never forget like, uh, what he told me is he's like, I went to a nutritionist and she said that milk was the devil. I was like, okay, so we're talking about a kid who desperately needs to put on muscle mass just to protect himself from the insane arm speed he has. And we're going to really have the is dairy healthy discussion with him. Like how about we just get him in a good training program? We get him making better choices because you know what? That glass of milk is probably better than the bag of Fritos he ate. Like, so <laughs> I, I try not to overwhelm kids early on. We try to find you know, tactful ways to work stuff in, teaching them about how to have smoothies and hide some spinach in it, you know, maybe cooking your eggs in a little bit of coconut oil. Like, there's, there's ways to, to add these things in without overwhelming them and thinking that they need to like, you know, overhaul their lifestyle. You're we being, try to you're being way too fancy with the I mean, spinach. We're like, did you eat today? Exactly. When did you eat last? I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's so, it's so simple. That's, that's amazing. So yeah. we have probably 20 of our own friends who volunteer to coach, uh, and Kelly mentioned this earlier, but volunteer to coach, you know, CYO basketball or baseball. You know, most of the teams we have in our area are coached by volunteer parents. Yep. And most of them are, you know, advertising executives or lawyers or doctors and have absolutely no idea what they're doing. What advice? And but but by the way, they're all really well intentioned. You know, they want to do a good yeah. job coaching. They want to be sure their kids remain injury free. What would your advice to a volunteer parent be about, you know, what they should focus on, what resources they should check out, you know, how they can sort of do a good volunteer job and, you know, make sure their kids stay safe and healthy? Yeah, I think the number one thing I always joke about is the problem with youth athletics is usually the parents. You know, it's usually the, the people who try to take the fun out of it. So usually. The number, yeah, the number one rule is don't live vicariously through your kid. It's all about having fun. Like, you know, I, and, and that doesn't mean like it has to be like the everybody gets a trophy or anything like that, but it's got to be a blast. The kids have to want to be there and stuff. But, you know, like I, I talk with Mike Reinold about it. Like he, his daughters are playing t-ball right now, and he's like, "I go and I coach. Really, I just tell them which base to run to. Like they don't even know which direction to go in." But obviously, as it goes further along, um, you know, things do get a little bit more complex. When you're talking about coaching little league, and kids need to know, you know, how to call for a cutoff throw. They need to know which bases to back up. Things like that. So, I think one of the honestly one of the biggest skills is to know when to step aside. And and I probably have that conversation with a dad who comes in with his son, you know once a week now and where they say I've taken them as far as I can go and I trust you guys and I need to, I need to step aside and just be supportive. And I think that it, I think it, it, it says a lot about a person when they recognize what their shortcomings are. Um, I think where it gets more problematic is when it gets contentious and someone doesn't really know what they don't understand. So I worry less about the people who think they know everything than about the people who were worried about not knowing enough. Cause at least the ones that don't think they know enough are 
you know, well-intentioned enough to realize they need to look somewhere else for help. But um, I know in our world, like USA Baseball has tons of like coaching resources available online and they're actually looking to continue to improve it, I know. Like, so most of the time, if you go out to some of those national organizations, they do have like great, if you're looking about the, like the techniques of coaching, like understanding the game and things like that, there are resources, you know, that are available to you, um, you know, but if it's more about like, you know, the actual mechanics of running a practice and understanding how to, how to keep things fun is just, we, we always have to realize when you deal with young kids, you have to have plan A, B, C, D, and E because chances are they're going to lose, lose interest and start kicking dandelions and you need to have a backup plan all the time. That was our daughter, Caroline, in soccer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the best, the best, this is the greatest, like, you know, where, hey, you should learn some hand-eye, you know, some foot, you know, and Caroline's running down the field in the big soccer game, right, The which is like a soccer club more thing. She's five at the time, by the way. And we're like, Caroline, you know, like, go for the ball. We like we finally, I would be like, I'm like, go for the ball. She's like, I can't. They're using it. <laughs> <laughs> so you just brought up a really good point that sometimes people don't understand the resources available to them. It's because I, I, on the one hand, it seems like it's so what we're talking about is very sophisticated, but it's not. Make sure your kids eat food. They're actually yeah. eating food and that they actually sleep and that, you know, hopefully that they're being exposed to multiple sports and then have a little bit of formal movement training in there. It could be ballet, it could be Pilates, it could be, you know, it could be, you know, squatting, you know, you start yeah. to see that it's, it's a lot more simple as we go that direction. Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen is, you know, soccer recognized it had an ACL epidemic on its hand, lower extremity epi epidemic, yeah. and it started this really great, you know, knee safety program that is really smart and really has been shown to be effective, but sometimes people don't use it, they don't know how to integrate it. Are there similar resources around protecting kids' arms and shoulders in baseball? There are. Most of them have centered on pitch count stuff. So... Um, you know, the, the challenging thing about that is that, you know, not all pitchers are created equal pitchers throwing the bottom of the ninth in a, you know, two, two game are inherently more stressful than pitches thrown in the bullpen. So it becomes challenging. Um, pitchsmart.org is something that major league baseball, um, has pulled together and, you know, so they've put out like more strict guidelines, uh, based on age groups and things like that. So there has been more and more, uh, to ma at least manage guys in terms of volume, um, within the competitive period. But the problem is that, Organizations can be selectively compliant with that. They may just ignore them altogether. Um, you know, there are most high school uh, state organizations do have pitch count regulations. Some of them are still doing like their homework on figuring out what's appropriate and all that. Um, so that's where most of like the you know the the stringent stuff has come about is that you know it's it's been managing volume. But all those are loose suggestions in most cases. Like Pitch Smart, you know, Dr. Andrews put out that you know. Pitchers who throw more than eight months out of the year are more likely to get hurt, dramatically higher likely. Guys who throw over 100 innings in a season are far more likely to get injured. Um, but there's nothing that says, you know, high school kid can't do this. Um, that, you know, I, I, what I can tell you is it scares scouts away when guys are, you know, have that high level involvement and they're, you know, those kids that are pitching you around. But there's nothing that says you have to not do that. So, um, you know, with that said, there are a lot of different approaches on how to prevent injuries. You know, we certainly have ours. Um, you know, that I think have been pretty successful, but, um, you know, everybody has a different perspective on it. There isn't like this, you know, this organization puts out an ACL preventive program. You've seen like the throwers 10 programs and things like that, that have been getting out to throwers after Tommy John surgery. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, we try to individualize as much as we can because throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in all of sports. Oh, it's um, a car accident. It's terrible. Yeah. The few, it's, the few Cy Young kids that I've worked with in pitchers, I'm like, uh, can we just rethink your whole career? Because I'm not sure this is yeah. good for you. It's it's 
it's absolutely insane. Um, and you know, it's it's you know, it's something that that's not going anywhere. That's the hard part about it. Is we love to say we're going to eradicate pitching injuries, but you're not going to eradicate pitching injuries unless kids stop pitching. There's always going to be something, and there's always going to be problems at the professional level when kids are you know are, are effectively broken bodies by the time they get there. So um, you know, short of just never signing anybody who's got a little bit of a calcification on his ulnar ligament <laughs> or ulnar collateral ligament, or a guy who's got a little bit of labral fraying, like. And then you're not going to have anybody to actually play baseball. So it's it's a challenging um, situation right now that I think you know we're going to have to wrestle with for the decades to come. But there are some resources out there, but very few of them are are tried and true. Like you know, I, I think it was Mike Boyle that said you know ACL prevention training is just good training. That's right. Um, and and that the problem is that baseball isn't like that. You know, it's it's ninety percent the same. There's a right and a wrong way to move, but there are positions you get in the pitching delivery that you can't possibly recreate in the weight room. Um, you know, there there's velocities that you just can't encounter anywhere else. One of the things that we've seen good success is the the program that um, like the academy programs. Where sometimes, like here's an example. One of our good mates is Nick Gill, who's the head strength conditioning coach for the for the All Blacks, mm-hmm. and and the way that you know rugby works in New Zealand is that you know they have this pro team level and then there are kids who are already being taught by the masters at this lower level yep. so young kids are now being exposed systematically this happens in 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 Australia this has happened and I know in like Arsenal and soccer for example but do you think that's a potential model do as professional sports do we need to do a better job reaching back to colleges reaching back to high schools reaching back to middle schools yeah, and I think it's starting to happen, uh, you know, just a little bit. You see it, um, you know, Major League Baseball have academies in the Dominican Republic, um, so they'll get guys, you know, as early as like 16, 17 who show promise. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a hint of that, but um, I could definitely see that happening, you know, and I think you are seeing a little bit. You look like an IMG academy, you know, some of the better players might go there and spend like a kind of like a pseudo prep year doing their thing before they head off to college or even to pro ball. So. Um, I, I think there's certainly a place. I think we have to get expertise to kids as early as we can, particularly if we're talking about kids who, you know, are very, very talented, um, who may show, you know, considerable promise. Um, you know, this isn't like us trying to like find the next, you know, 14 year old elite gymnast. Um, you know, that's that's a different world because the you know the the age to compete is so much lower. When you're talking about you know Major League Baseball, I I once heard the useful life of a a free agent is kind of like 26 to 31. So you're going to push, you know, five years before that, maybe five years after that for what's, you know, considered like a, a long, good career. Like we've got to get those guys, you know, six, seven years before they start to hit that peak of, you know, their velocity, their bat speed, their sprinting speed. Um, if we can get them early enough that when they get to those, you know, high power, high threshold years, I think we're in a pretty good place. Um, but that's talent identification is, is very, very challenging. So. I think we could all agree that one of the ways to combat this whole epidemic of specialization is getting kids into strength and conditioning programs. But what I see is that there is a tradition, sort of historical tradition of boys uh, doing a lot of strength and conditioning and having it be part of their sports. But it's from what I can see, especially having daughters, it's still pretty much a desert out there when it comes to girls and strength and conditioning. And what I, I guess my question is, you know, Kelly and I are trying to do our little part in Marin County, California, in terms of getting some strength and conditioning to girls. And I know you're doing your part, but, you know, for parents who aren't near either one of us, you know, would you recommend that they go into gymnastics or what sort of, um, you know, what, what should they look for to get their daughters into? Because obviously it's equally important for these girls to get this kind of coaching and training, but it's not as available. Yeah. I I mean, I think, 
to, to be honest, the training a female athlete is actually easier than training a male athlete because one of the things. I mean, I was at the University of Connecticut for my grad degree from 2003 to 2005. So we had, you know, 12 of the best basketball players in the country. And what was great about working with them is they would not put a two and a half pound plate on that barbell if their technique was not perfect. I mean, they really took a ton of pride in moving perfectly. And when you got them into a great environment like that, I mean, they really, really thrived. And, you know, I'd argue that strength and conditioning means more for female athletes than it does for males. You know, on the male side, you know, 95 plus percent of guys are doing it now and getting involved. Whereas in the female side, if, if you get involved in strength and conditioning, it, the, the competitive advantage is so much more dramatic um, just because not many people, like you said, have, have really taken advantage of it. It's, it's very important. I think in general, um, you know, in many cases it comes down to like, are they comfortable in the environment? So, you know, if, and I, and I can certainly speak from our world, like walking into an environment with 30 baseball players and they're training hard and, you know, raging against the machine blasting, it, it might not be perfect for, you know, a typical 14-year-old female. We, we certainly have girls that jump in on that, but it's something that we have to combat. So I think, you know, to be honest, on the, on the female side, sometimes it helps if they start together. They start as part of groups. Like you hear a lot about um, – I have a good buddy up in Toronto who, who works with a, a lot of like female volleyball players and like kind of the club sport side of things. So maybe like team training is, is an avenue through which they can pursue things a little bit better. Um, you know, you look at what like Mike Boyle does with USA women's hockey, like they still train as a team, even they're out of the Olympic cycle. Um, so I think maybe those are the opportunities. Maybe we need to push more, um, you know, as, as, a, as a, a group of female athletes than we do as like just trying to get individuals started up because um, they seem to do really, really well when they can feed off each other. Completely. In fact, if you ask, if you pin me down and say, Kelly, what are you going to do for the next 10 years? I'm going to tell you that I'm going to develop and try to work with, you know, middle school, high school girls in Northern California. I mean, I'm like, look, this is, this is the, they're the most, there's the most low hanging fruit on the ground I've ever seen in a population on these Titan women who are, you know, ready to go title niner, you know, children of title niners. And yet, you know, have never put a ball, you know, barbell over their head can't hold a plank, can't do a pull-up, can't do a push-up. I mean, just Amazing. fundamental positions. So, you know, and, I, you're right. I think there's, there's just so much work to be done, and, and it's easy. Yeah, my, my wife was a captain of the crew team at Bates. She wrote it's a pretty well-known crew uh, set up up in Maine. Um, she graduated from there, and she never really lifted until we started dating back in 2007. And she, like, got into it. Like, she'll go bang out 12 pull-ups. I've seen her deadlift over 300 pounds. Like, she's just... She's strong, and what's funny is like she'll hop on the erg and like blow her old times out of the water. Now <laughs> this is like literally like I mean she's ten plus years out of school. It's pretty astounding. People don't realize what a dramatic difference uh, you know just a little bit of strength training can do for female athletes. And what to honest is like so important to me, which I think is awesome, is you know you know we, my our daughters see us and when we go for walks or you know like when when you sit down and you color with your kid your kid starts coloring too they watch they they emulate they do exactly what you do so i mean our girls are always throwing balls around the house and kicking them to me and stuff but they come to the gym with us every sunday so mom and i lift and you know they'll be racing around they'll be picking up med balls and throwing them and you know going through all the soft tissue opens they'll be foam rolling on a on a 3 foot roller <laughs> themselves like it's awesome to see because i know that every time they're around it that pattern is just getting more and more ingrained in their brain that, hey, exercise is part of my life, whether I'm two or whether I'm 20 or whether I'm 50. You know, I want them to, to see that over and over again and be exposed to it. That really is the best model. If, you, if you're worried about your kids, 
show us your pull-up bar, show us your kettlebell, show, yeah. show me your practice. Because, you know, Georgia, yeah. you know, my, it's, it's ironic, of course, I have a couple daughters you may know, and I'm married to a woman who's a world champion and a rower at Cal. So there you go. <laughs> I, I know Great you. Great minds think alike. And, and, <laughs> and uh, she's the best training partner I've ever had. But even now, um, it's interesting, our, my oldest daughter now, 11, has said, hey, Dad, you know, we now have a routine at night where I smash her. I, uh, you know, I mobilize her <laughs> quads, and we know we're listening to the book on tape. And that's just kind of part of our routine. And I, and I think what you're, the hallmark of all this is there's no quick fix. There is only process and work, and it works every time if we give it enough time. And modeling is so, so important. Yeah. I mean, we have athletes that are, you know, kinesthetic learners. They need to be put in a position. We have athletes that are visual learners. They need to see it. And then we have athletes that are, that are auditory learners. And, you know, I think kids to some degree, you've got to figure out like what works best for them. Like I know, like if I put the crayon in my daughter's hands and we start drawing her name, she starts to pick up on it. But I know also that she's watching me throw and she picks up from just seeing it. Like there's, and you know, I can say, Hey Addison, fix your legs when she starts doing the, the W sitting and she gets it. So, you know, I think we, we can take a lot of the stuff that we do these elite athletes and we can realize they apply to two year olds and, and these patterns are what's going to stick because we're doing it when they're in their formative years. I love it. The, the last image I'll, I'll leave with is that, um, you know, Georgia is not the tallest girl yet. She has, she's like one of the last kids to go through puberty, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, But we have these beams in our house. They're all about eight feet tall, seven and a half, eight feet. And Georgia literally will run down the hall and and she spikes every single beam now. And and it's like her dirty handprints are on every beam in our house. And how can I stop that? Because, you know, her toes are pointed, her butt is squeezed, she's making good contact, and it's it's just play. It's background. I used to hit header. I was a soccer player, so I would do um, the little uh, pull-down thing from our attic in the house I grew in growing up. There was a little string that hung down in our upstairs hallway, and I would hit a header on it every time I walked by. <laughs> so snap up. My mom, I'll never, she, she talks about it all the time. Like We dinged up the cabinets, kicking soccer balls around the kitchen, and she's, you know, she always says, I never trade it for the world, but that's what it's about. Meanwhile, you've got a little hole in your head, perfect for that little square <laughs> handle. <Exactly. laughs> Eric, thank you so thank much, you so man. Much, Where, um, just let everyone know the easiest way to find your resources. Yeah, uh, just ericcressy.com. It's E-R-I-C-C-R-E-S-S-E-Y is a good bet. Hey, do us a favor. Thank your wife for being such a baller and making time for us. We appreciate it. Will do. Thanks for having Thanks, me, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Got it. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and MobilityWad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You got it! You got it! You got it!